I am publishing a book through Unbound. Unbound are a publishing company, which means that they don't publish things that they don't think are good and that they edit and they support their authors. The thing that makes them different from other publishing companies is their half publishing company and half crowdfunding company, which means that the way that the books get published is that people who want to read the books pre-order those books. They can pre-order them as a digital copy or as a hardback, or they can pledge more money to get different kinds of things along with the book that they're pre-ordering. Unbound approached me in December to see if I wanted to adapt my show What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity into a book and I said yes please I definitely would like to do that and so that is what I'm doing. If you go to the Unbound website and there'll be a link to this in the show notes you can find Mansplaining Masculinity over there and pre-order a copy of that book. The way that this book is going to get made is by people like you pre-ordering it and pledging to it and people like you telling other people about it, sharing it on social media, recommending it to other people, those kinds of things. You can find out what the book is fully about by reading about it on the page. There's a video of me in a purple dress and fedora with my childhood toy dolphin telling you about what the book is about. Video is your preferred way to absorb information. But basically, Mansplaining Masculinity is about looking into myself and looking out at culture and thinking about how masculinity is constructed and created and how systematic elements contribute both to the ways that men are hurt by society but also the ways that men hurt other people in society. It is not a book that says that men are the problem but it is a book that will say that we can be part of the solution. And if you want to get an idea of what it's like before you pledge to it, you can listen to a podcast of the show that it's adapted from on the website mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. And also there was an episode of BBC Radio 4's Forethought called Liberating Men, which was a reflection on an extension of the show. So listen to those shows, see if you like what you hear, and if you do, then please do support and pledge to make mansplaining masculinity happen. Looking at myths and folklore and fairy tales are just a really interesting way of thinking about what it means to be a person. This collective expression of what humans think we are or what we want to be, it's 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 like the sort of subconscious for the entire species kind of thing. And I just I just find it fascinating. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Hell Robin Gurney. Hello, Robin. Hi. Um, you've come to my flat, which I'm always really grateful to people for doing. It 
allows for better sound quality, but it puts my guests out. Oh, well, I mean, it was, it was no problem. I live basically down the road, That's true. as it turns out. That's so. true, as it turns out. Because, we, yeah, we, we didn't actually meet in this part of London, but actually now we both live in this part of London. Mm-hmm. It's convenient. So the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? So I saw you perform Mansplaining Masculinity at the Dog Star in Brixton. It was a double bill show with AJ McKenna, who was doing Howl of the Banty. Um, and it was amazing. It was such an interesting two-pronged attack on ideas about masculinity. Right. It was just beautiful, and I'm, yeah, really glad I, I saw I saw you and AJ's show. They were both great. That's how we met. I'm half of, of the performances. I, I wasn't all of the performances, so I can kind of be more of a fan of it than I would have been if it was just me. It was kind of after the Edinburgh Festival, so both me and AJ had done our shows in Edinburgh, so they were kind of quite worked-on shows mm-hmm. by that point. I was coming back to London. It was kind of like a homecoming gig, and I'd seen AJ's show in Edinburgh, and so I was like, yes, the, these, these two sh- shows should go together. I recorded both of those shows, so AJ's show is also available online as well, so I'll make sure I link to both of those uh, in the show notes. I love her show, and it kind of, that I think that was kind of like the last time she did it as well, like it kind of exists in audio form, but I don't mm. know if she really does it anymore, so... Yeah, I think she's working on another show at the moment, right. but I'm not. I'm not sure what stage. What that's stage at. is that? Yeah, no, I saw that on Facebook too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how we know each other. And then the show I did at the time, which is kind of in, on ice at the moment, stand up tragedy was how I was presenting those shows. It was a stand up tragedy presents night, and then the year after, I was looking for some other stand up tragedy presents shows, and uh, we, we, I hosted your show as well. Yeah, that's right. That was the first time I think I'd seen you perform I was like I was aware of you on the on the night uh, that mm-hmm. we met but then I was also doing a show and so like my head was all over the place oh yeah totally I, <laughs> I get that on on you know nights I'm performing as well it's just right. very hard to focus on interacting with people as humans right. when you're sort of like gearing up to interact with people as like the audience right right <laughs> yeah you don't you, you kind of don't want to cross the streams almost like if you start <laughs> thinking of people as individuals too much it's hard to kind of commune with the audience as a whole because otherwise you end up being cliquey and stuff like that if you do try to talk to the people in the room when you're when you're in, in front of the the audience people don't really like that they want to be addressed as a, as a group not mm. as you know I've seen that a little bit recently so I'm, I, that's a bit in my mind <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was good to see your show then. And your show, I don't know if it's the same show you're doing now. Yeah. It is, yeah. Albeit edited, developed, and hopefully with a score this time. Oh, exciting. <laughs> yeah. That's nice. And it will, I can imagine a score will fit that show well as well, because it's about fairy tales. And mm-hmm. kind of fairy tales and music kind of go very nicely together, I think. Yeah. When I took the show to Edinburgh in 2016, I sometimes opened it by playing an original in-universe folk song um, that I collaborated <laughs> on with a friend who's a folk singer. I wrote the lyrics and uh, they wrote the tune. Um, and it was it was a birthday gift for another friend of ours. Nice. <laughs> the, the folk musician in question is called Ellie Had away and I can give you a link to um to the song yeah do absolutely well it sounds like even though we're in a a better sound situation it (laughs) sounds like above me I have neighbors because this is a downstairs flat and one of the neighbors upstairs is a is a toddler so we can hear some running around I think 
Oh, uh, I thought child. it was someone like running on the spot, right? <laughs> like well, yeah, training it, or whatever. It's a toddler running on the spot. <laughs> I, I think the next question that I ask everybody is, "What do you do now?" Pretty much the same. Um, I'm still a poet. I just I live in northeast London rather than south London now. <laughs> right, and you and you is that your that's your main like way of making money? As was... oh god no. Oh right. <laughs> uh, no. Um, so I'm I'm a writer of various kinds. My day job is technical writing to do with agricultural safety standards and stuff but you know that's that's my that's my job but right. you know my like career to be all kind of like I don't know just Im- imagine that's got like sarcasm tildes and a few stars around it <laughs> um like my, my my career is is poetry and you know academic writing fiction a bit but mostly poetry at the moment right and how do you find that working with writing for your day job in a kind of less creative way and then kind of by night still doing the same thing but in a more creative way oh well it's 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 really really different like a lot of it is just sort of copying and pasting really rather than actual writing I suppose what I like about it is that it brings me into contact with weird words quite often like right. hexithiazox is the name of a chemical and I just think it's beautiful right. <laughs> it's got this kind of spiky abstract quality to it yeah no, it's and, a great and you know there's there's like malathion which to me sounds like the villain in a fantasy story right absolutely <laughs> yeah no I can see actually the kind of writing and, and interests that you have like from what I've seen as well those kind of words would particularly fit with, with <laughs> of that I have a kind of interest in you know fantasy I guess and science fiction and things like that fairy tale and so yeah like those kind of words work for me as well or like they also <laughs> sound like kind of often they sound like Greek myths or something as well which yeah. is also an area of my interest oh brilliant me too um, <laughs> I, I grew up with uh, the Larousse Encyclopedia of Mythology as oh, one wow. of my like favorite bedside books wow <laughs> that's great I mean yeah like myth myth mythology in general is, is a yeah love of mine Greek myths and Norse myths were my main myths of choice growing up but now I'm kind of much more like I guess not more but I'm interested in kind of all of the myths and how they all reflect and contradict and contrast with each other yeah yes same exactly <laughs> I find it super fascinating and the, the way that myths can kind of be traced back through all these sort of you know the, the, the idea that there may be some kind of historical truth behind an archetype or right. possibly that that archetype just exists because it's a fundamental part of human nature but then what even is human nature and right. to what extent is that culturally constructed and it just I feel like looking at myths and folklore and fairy tales right. are just a really interesting way of thinking about what it means to be a person ultimately yeah. you know they're, they're sort of like this collective expression of what humans think we are or what we want to be it's it's, it's it's like the sort of subconscious for the entire species kind of thing and i just i just find it yeah fascinating right no exactly it is it's fascinating and exciting when did writing come into your life well I distinctly remember when I was in reception at primary school I was already planning my life based on what I wanted the about the author section (laughs) um, to say my first book and obviously it was it was you know given given that I was like five it, it was it was you know like Hell runs a wildlife preserve and also is a politician and, <laughs> like, um, and stuff like that. But no, I've, I've always 
I've always told stories and I've always really enjoyed the process of putting words together and finding finding ways to express something that not exactly that's new but talking about something familiar in unfamiliar ways or vice versa like the power of language to make something alien or right. to bring it home and that's just been like part of how my brain works for as long as I can remember right <laughs> a story that my my parents like to tell is that by the time I was 18 months old they had this book containing all the words that I knew and it was like 200 words nice wow (laughs) Um, (laughs) and um, I I apparently uh, quite scared this old lady who I met in a post office because I was this tiny child in a pram and I had this cuddly toy cat with me and so she started talking to me as though I was you know a baby which would make sense and I invited her back to our house for tea rattled off our entire address <laughs> including postcode and she asked me what type of cats I liked and I said oh well I like domesticated cats wow that's <laughs> an impressive word yeah I mean like I don't really remember it but it's been no. told by mum and dad right. like so many times that I now feel like I yeah. kind of do remember it yeah I've got I've got uh, experiences like that yeah <laughs> yeah those kind of early like I feel like you don't remember those years but you hear so much about those years that you that you feel do. like you yeah. do yeah yeah so words became a fascination from a very early age yeah uh, I'm, not, I'm trying to work out if that's the earliest I've heard someone go in for for, for, <laughs> for I think somebody somebody I was talking to about music said uh, that they had had like music played to them when they were in utero so I guess <laughs> that maybe that's the earliest yeah I think uh, that, that inspiration takes the in the show so far but okay so you, you got into into words very early reception you were thinking in terms of about the author I mean <laughs> when did you when did you start writing poems I guess I started writing poetry um I know that I wrote something when I was nine or ten because it got published in one of those like anthologies of children's literature type things which in retrospect they're a bit of a scam because they just publish everything because then the parents buy it um sure but but still um, something yeah <laughs> still um, <laughs> yeah yeah i mean I'm, I'm not i'm not sure i'd particularly want anyone to look it up um i was i was at a stage where i was very overconfident and using a lot of what I would probably now consider to be like tortured metaphors and like really long words just because I could Um, you know most people had something about 10 lines long mine was a page long and it was like a metaphor about bullying that involved a sort of toad monster in a dungeon (laughs) as far as I can remember (laughs) um I mean that sounds good to me, but it's, it's, it's kind of about the execution, and I and I imagine I can imagine the kind of execution it might have had. Yeah, um, see if I can dig it up for you. Having been a kind of yeah, I mean I've certainly I've certainly got plenty of humiliating poems in my back catalogue. So, uh, like like solidarity on that. Do you write in other mediums? I started a novel a while ago, right. which was dealing with a lot of the same themes that my current work is focusing on. Actually now. I think about it but it was it was one of those national novel writing month things so a lot of it was was like absolute dross right um but you have to I think whatever like you have to write some dross to get a finished novel oh yeah absolutely <laughs> just ideally don't keep it in I know so it's so sim- similarly to the sleeping princess my current show it was about like 
fairy beings and trauma but in this particular iteration it was creatures from the beyond attack members of a university rock sock (laughs) Um, (laughs) and some of it gets mistaken for stage effect it was very silly in lots of ways and it was very much just me writing from where I was because I was mainlining Buffy the Vampire Slayer I think I just finished my masters but I was still hanging out with people from the various university societies and I was living in Brighton and it was set in Brighton so like it's definitely not something that I think has legs but it was fun to work on and I might go back to it at some point maybe small amounts of short fiction but I haven't submitted anything for publication there's a play that I've written some fragments of it's sort of a prequel to The Tempest called Miranda and Caliban and um, it's about the relationship between those characters and exploring Sycorax and Prospero. Yeah, now I think about it, it's probably also relatively similar to, like, again, in terms of themes and preoccupations. Right, but that's quite common in a, yeah. good, in a good way, I think. Like, a lot of creative people, I know I do, like, keep on going round and round on the same themes. And that's not to say that our work becomes samey. It just means that there's certain themes that we're obsessed by. We have to interrogate, like, yeah. because we have to. Like, yeah. it's hard to say why. And sort of lo- looking at, like, the consequences of magic and thinking about that both in sort of political terms and in psychological terms. I mean, that's... that. I, I guess, if anything, were a manifesto for the sort of stuff I'd like to write about when I'm storytelling, then, then that's it. You know, right. looking at these stories which have really fucking weird stuff happen in them that we kind of take for granted because they're myths or they're fairy tales or you know they're a Shakespeare play and kind of going okay so what does that do to someone right and what does that do to the world like how do we take these events and this system of magic and extrapolate that I don't know once I start thinking about things in that way then the stories just kind of start telling themselves almost right right I, I that that's all very relatable to me actually those are some of the things that I'm interested in is like the relationship between the magical and the real is definitely like a, a big preoccupation of mine I can kind of relate to that thinking in in those kind of ways about stories I mean you perform your words as well right so yeah. you're not you're not just a page poet or a page writer in you're you're, mm-hmm. you're you're a performer I mean when did that happen and, and, and how do you feel about that relationship when I was a kid and relatively unselfconscious um, I used to perform poems like at my family right. sometimes then in in secondary school I started reading some of my work in front of the class because that or I mean actually in primary school as well because that's just kind of what you have to do do and at secondary school I ended up getting an award for it I got like this little silver trophy with like the insert name here award for poetry and drama or something and then I ended up having to read some of my stuff to an assembly of the whole school which was terrifying but also kind of exhilarating and then there was a longish period of my life where I stopped writing poetry or at least it felt long at the time it right. was a couple of years but you know to a teenager that's a big proportion yeah that is a long time at that life. point yeah <laughs> but I I got back into it in I think my second year of second or third year of my undergrad it was because I I really liked Kate Tempest 
and this friend of mine, uh, James Webster, told me that there was a Kate Tempest gig happening at Hackney Hammer and Tongue because this was before Kate Tempest right. was like super big. Right, wow. Like I've been a fan of hers like since the beginning. I know that's a really right. hipster thing right, to right, say, right. but it's true. I just, I found, I went one day I was just in this random cafe in Camden and she was performing there oh, and I wow. was just hypnotized. She was amazing. So yeah, um, I went to this, uh, this slam and you got in for free if you agreed to perform a poem that was nerve-wracking and I nearly bottled it and um, and didn't go on stage but between Webster and a very kind and encouraging staff member they managed to like figuratively push me onto the stage and I read out a poem in this very like halted filtering you know I was I was crouched over my mobile phone and reading it off the screen and it was really scary but it also felt really great and that was kind of how I started performing poetry again basically and that was also my only slam up until a couple of months ago when I um went to the Genesis Poetry Slam twice in a row and got into the final three both times, which was amazing and confusing, honestly. (laughs) Like, I really didn't expect that because a lot of my work isn't traditionally the kind of thing that, that, you know, gets points at slams. Like, you know, it's not necessarily super relatable or... I don't know, maybe I'm just doing myself down. Um, but <laughs> I mean, is, like, you know, I that's have... That's very possible. I mean, <laughs> you're, you're a writer, that's what most writers do. We'll find something to, like, say slightly negatively about our work. Yeah, but... yeah, that's fair. I just, I guess what I mean is a lot of popular poetry, and I'm, I don't at all mean this in a disparaging way, like, I love poets talking about their feelings. I have poems about a changeling girl who's being summoned by, like, the fairy queen to come and hunt humans. Right. Um, um, and like a poem about Midas and Medusa meeting on an internet dating website and right. having a very short first date, <laughs> um, stuff like that. So it's 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 always I always feel kind of surprised when people like it because yeah, I guess I've I've internalised the idea that that like oh, it's all weird stuff. I mean, it's easy to internalise that idea because that's the idea that we're kind of beset by when in school, I would imagine, and in, like in life in general. If you're interested in those kind of things, you're kind of seen as, as, as geeky or whatever, or like maybe there's a class issue as well around it. People like get a bit intimidated by the idea of the classics or whatever, and they can understandably resist those ideas as well. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of complicated I mean, things that swirl around. That's one of the that. things I fucking love about Kate Tempest, the way that she... She relates this very, very real set of life experiences with these myths. And there's, there's, you know, that line about how don't ever let them make you believe that the words of the wise aren't your words to read. And it's just like, oh, love her so much. I realise it's now kind of a cliche to love Kate Tempest, but I don't care. I love Kate Tempest. Fight me. (laughs) I think that's fair. I I don't know, like, you know, I I doubt there'll be very many people going to want to come to blows over Kate Kate Tempest. (laughs) Oh, I just, I just thinking because of the whole thing with Holly McNish yeah, like sure. recently, and like, ooh, female performance poets, they're no. the worst. Well, they, like, you know, it's, it's such a snobby, ridiculous attitude, I and mean, I have no patience with it. No, sure. I mean, any any woman or any marginalised person, uh, like who does well, uh, everyone starts to hate. Um, <laughs> I, I am not one of those people, so don't worry. Like, in, in, at least in this room, nobody's nobody's objecting to your your love of Kate oh, yeah, Tempest. No, I, I like, like Kate, like Kate Tempest. F- uh, the fight me was at you no, no, sure. sort of like the generally world, yeah. to the world yeah. <laughs> well, you know 
Absolutely. Where did the myths and the fairy tales and stuff like that, where did they kind of come into your life? Were they there from the start too? Well, uh, like I was saying, the LaRousse Encyclopedia of Mythology, I lived in my bedroom. I used to read it a lot when I was a kid. Again, it feels like, you know, something that was that was just part of my life for as long as I can remember, like right. hearing about myths and stuff. My dad was very interested in them. Um, right. So, like, even before I could read then I would have like stories read to me and right. stuff so yeah um, I mean my my dad read me the Iliad and the Odyssey like <laughs> as a kid like that was a big kind of pivotal kind of like defining experience for me mm-hmm. yeah so, yeah Oh, which translation was it? Uh, it was the oh god, it was. The, I'm not very good at like remembering specific. It's just like stuff. if it was the EV Rhea translation. I think it was the Oxford Children's translation. Okay, I think. It, was, it was specifically a children's version. Okay, I was just wondering because um, I mean, it was big. I, like... It was a big children's <laughs> version, like. Um, like as far as I can remember, um, one of the like main translations of the Odyssey was something that was initially done as a translation by an academic who was reading it to his children. Um, oh, nice. So, so that would be a really lovely parallel if my recollection is right. But this is something that I remember learning when I was doing my A levels. Right. So this, you know, is completely unattested apart from like, oh sort of remember this thing happened yeah, but that's but fine. I'll look into it <laughs> citation needed right and so you, so you, so myths and fairy tales were something that were alive in your household growing up yeah yeah we had a whole bunch of the Andrew Lang books who was a Victorian collector right. of children's stories my house was also full of Tolkien and has only got more and more full of Tolkien as <laughs> um, as the years uh, go by right my dad read me the Lord of the Rings as well but but he'd never read it before. Like his first experience was my first experience of that book. Oh right. So he so there wasn't much talking in the house till I like we insisted. Oh my 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 <laughs> my, uh, my, my my dad is um is like obsessed with Tolkien. I don't mean that in a bad way, but just it's sure. it's a very strong interest for him. Like he's he's quite well regarded on some Tolkien internet fan forums. Cool. <laughs> um, I mean that's like I think I read The Lord of the Rings like sixteen and a half times when I was a kid. So amazing. I can relate. Although <laughs> these days I have a lot of like uh, strong critiques for the Lord of the Rings as yeah. well, which I have to, often feel like I kind of have to make clear. Um, but at the same time, I also think it's very good. Like uh, it's complicated. It is very good, and I also I I have opinions about some critiques of the Lord of the Rings. Okay, <laughs> like opinions with a capital O. <laughs> um, okay, you're giving me an expectant look. Um, I'm interested. Yeah. So um, <laughs> Tolkien is often accused of being bad at writing women and evidence given for this include like the character Eowyn who doesn't get together with Aragorn who's a kind of hero figure and ends up like giving up being a warrior and becoming a healer and people talk about this being sexist but she does kill the like spoiler alert like <laughs> the, the leader of the Black Riders so like, like the Nazgul Lord like the big the big one so yeah like, I, well, but, but also she does need a bit of help though from a hobbit which yeah. is Slightly, slightly um, less impressive. But I, I, th- I, th- I think you know, looking at strong female characters in terms of like whether they are literally physically strong is quite reductive. Eowyn doesn't get together with Aragorn because Tolkien thought she was too good for him. He describes Aragorn as being too old and grim and lordly for her. Right. Um, and she gets together with Faramir, who Tolkien describes as being literally the best of all men. He's a really nice guy. 
guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, she she retires um, from battle and becomes a healer. Like, that's only sexist if you're glorifying war. But yeah, Tolkien was absolutely. so strongly anti-war. That's like, right. you know, and like, I think people need to remember to read him in the context of the fact that he was a war survivor, right. you know. And actually being able to leave battle and go to a life of peace and solitude is like the perfect happy ending. You know, Sam goes back to the Shire and does gardening and stuff. And right. that's this like amazing thing. Yeah, in a way, he, he he ends up being a healer, a healer of the Shire, but like it's still a he, he yeah. what he does is healing. Yeah, exactly. I don't think that Eowyn is a sexist representation of women. Tolkien did also say in his letters, I think, that he was kind of nervous about writing women badly, so wrote fewer of them. Right. But actually, like in, in his unpublished works, so for people who aren't massive Tolkien nerds, a bunch of Tolkien's sort of backstory for Middle Earth was collated by his son Christopher into a book called The Silmarillion but then a load of those raw notes were also later released as a series entitled uh, The Histories of Middle Earth. In The Silmarillion edited by Christopher Tolkien a load of women being badass it was just cut there's a line about Galadriel being the most like valiant of her kin there's a really cool female elf who taught Turin basically everything he knew and she's cut completely. Interesting. Um, I think that that Tolkien is not as straight up sexist no, as um, as some people like to portray him as. I mean, I like I like the fact <laughs> that you're saying that. That's that's actually been my instinct in some ways. I mean, I do think you can say that the women are definitely not represented particularly well in the Lord of the Rings. But like, mm-hmm. if you're saying like broader world, those are some interesting arguments. Like, I don't really knock Tolkien particularly on 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 gender or sex lines. To be honest, mm-hmm. I guess the critiques that I would make of Tolkien are much more around race. Oh yeah, um, and also. Um, writing style as well mm-hmm. um, so but, but 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 so it doesn't sound like we're in particular disagreement yeah no. which is good um, well or bad or whatever some, <laughs> some people like it when when I get into disagreements or, or like actually that doesn't really happen but I do sometimes get people saying why don't you argue with your guests more um, but because but, you're not a morning shock jock exactly <laughs> well, a little bit like what you were saying about respecting healing as a, as a, as a profession and as an alternative to war I think you know I, I'm not interested in having arguments with people I'm interested in having conversations I think that's as valid a thing as as, as an as a argument if, if not more yeah you, you don't you don't need to force conflict to make something compelling right um yeah are you do you need do you want some more water if you want some more water I can I can get some oh water. thank you yeah that would be great <laughs> it's always good for my guests to be as uh, relaxed as possible and so I uh I should have got the water out, I guess. Oh, no, no, it's, it's fine. Like I'm just... general jug. I just constantly drink water, basically. That's... Well, that would make you a human. I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm really bad at drinking water, which is a bit odd, because I am also a human. Um, so I should, I should like, get into it. But I, I find it... Um, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. I've got a bit of a weird like phobia around water I think like I, I I can't deliberately drink water unless I'm really really like thirsty oh wow like I'll always like take yeah soft drinks or whatever over water okay I don't know why mm, I've just um <laughs> I pretty much just have always have like a pint glass of water right. like with me and I just sort of drink it unconsciously which has led to I think I'm unique among all my friendship group actually in that I'm the only person who when they went to see like a medical professional about some stuff they were like you drink too much water you need to drink less water <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing right. but apparently it is I think 
think it is a bit of a thing. Um, I'm definitely on the other side of that 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 issue. I'm more more likely to get told I, I don't drink enough water. Uh, I certainly spill quite a lot of water though, as the table is showing at the time. But yeah, like okay, so so that was a really I hadn't heard that take on the Lord of the Rings and Tolkien and and gender though before like that specific take, which I I'm I'm glad that it came up because it's mm. an interesting perspective. But yeah, I feel I should maybe like offer credit where so that that isn't a result of my own original research. That's something that's pointed out by an author called Douglas Kane, I believe, in a book called Ardo Reconstructed, and it's not it's not like the main point that he makes, but it was definitely the thing that I found most like interesting. Right. Ardo Reconstructed is a book about the history of how the Silmarillion as a sort of document was like put together and stuff. Right. That's from me reading people talking about Tolkien rather than me having read all the histories myself right. and like reaching this conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, I mean, that, it's, it's, it's good of you to point that out as well, like c- citing where things come from is really, it's really great. If you can remember where these ideas come into your head, that's half the problem in terms of <laughs> citing people fairly. It's like you don't always know when someone else idea is has come into your head unknownst yeah um, yeah I've, I've definitely done that thing where someone tells me an interesting fact and I forget about it and then months later I tell them the fact and yeah. they're like you know that I told you that <laughs> right <laughs> yeah I do that all the time as well. <laughs> so myth and folk tales and fairy tales were in your household and you you're you write poetry and you you are interested in words you're putting that together in your in your show right yeah what else are you threading in what else is your show about what is your objective of your show um <laughs> it's a big question no so it is it is it is a big question um <laughs> and I'm, I'm trying to work out how to answer it without spoiling, spoiling it for people show, yeah. who want to come and see it i right. mean obviously you've seen a version of it yeah, yeah. It is the hardest thing is to, to know what to tell, to entice without, yeah, spoiling. Yeah, I can talk about the initial setup of it. It begins with Sleeping Beauty or Briar Rose, who is woken in the sanitised, like, you know, version where, you know, she's woken up by a kiss rather than something else. Um, but she she's had a hundred years of nightmares thanks to the curse. So she is in a very fragile mental state and everything is just going horribly wrong and she's struggling to keep control. Yeah, so it's it's thinking about what other consequences psychologically and sociopolitically of this thing where a princess and her family have just been out of the picture for a hundred years. Like, you know, so right. thinking about the effects that her dreams have had on her, but also the effects on the kingdom around them. There's a whole load of backstory and world building that's gone into this, a lot of which doesn't actually appear in the show, but when I eventually, you know, turn them into a series of fantasy novels right. or whatever. It'll, it'll hopefully be like become a bit more explicit. I mean, that's very in the keeping with Tolkien kind of <laughs> tradition. I mean, like you know, that's the as you've already alluded to in, in, when we talked about that. You know, he has so much world built around the actual bits that he gave to us and that's really cool that you're you're doing that i guess your world building starting with some other people's stories as the kind of start of your world and then you're building out from there yeah and and linking them together and stuff which you could say about talking too actually yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) um you know he 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 drew on a whole load of myths and stuff when when he was putting his his things together in the hundred years that have passed and yeah not all of this comes up in the show because it's not relevant 
relevant to what begins as a very kind of internal claustrophobic thing because the the start of the show is basically you're trapped in Sleeping Beauty's thought processes with her and right. it's and it's so she's not thinking so much about like the wider politics right. but in a hundred years the kingdom has basically dissolved there are some isolated earldoms about half of it has been annexed by the neighbouring country and then there are these sort of areas controlled by monasteries because in this world there was a lot of conflict between the church and the crown after the king banned spinning wheels because in Sleeping Beauty you know she's going to prick her finger on a spindle so spinning wheels and spindles it all gets banned and in in my story the church takes a very strong stance against this they're saying you shouldn't be listening to these fairies because they're like demonic sort of leftovers from this like old pagan world and they shouldn't be exerting control over over our leadership so we're gonna like harbor spinners in like our monasteries in the abbeys and protect them because we don't think that these people's livelihoods should be compromised because you're trying to save the life of this one princess who won't even die she'll just fall asleep right I mean that's a fair argument <laughs> yeah I think so yeah. and I'm looking into what happens when you take something and go okay how does this affect people because right. yeah banning banning spinning and spinning wheels like would have a massive effect a massive on like the effect, yeah. on you know the economy I mean they'd probably start having to trade for for like hide more um, or get up like just paying premium for like imported things you'd still be able to make fabric with table looms and stuff but spinning was the main way of making cloth right so like it it just would have these far-reaching like socio-political consequences right. yeah so I mean so that that's that's sort of the backstory to the sleeping princess or at least that's part of the backstory there's also some stuff going on with why sleeping beauty is cursed i keep calling her sleeping beauty because that's like the thing that people know yeah but yeah. um but in in the show she's referred to as briar rose right. um and her actual given name in this is rosamond right the other thing that's going on you know you know the whole thing with um inviting the fairies and then there's the fairy who wasn't invited and so yeah. she's angry about this and yeah. you know puts the curse on her i mean there are lots of theories about where this comes from and i mean i don't know that any of them are particularly right but one idea that i found quite compelling was that this 13th fairy represents the 13th month and it's about the switching from a lunar calendar to a solar calendar oh, interesting. so the way I interpreted that for this version is basically that when Christianity came to this country this fictional fairy tale country because right. obviously it is a Christian country because the initial drama takes place at a christening right. so the calendar has an effect on how the fairies function because fairies are kind of fed and sustained by belief so so we go from having a culture that measures time by seasons to a country that measures time by calendar months and because this country is sort of where those fairies are based then it means that the four seasonal fairies split into 12 month fairies and the remaining fairy who is the night fairy who's basically like the personification of darkness and I don't mean that in like a bad way right. but just, so the, the cosmology here is basically initially there was the 
the night fairy and the day fairy and then when humans started having beliefs about seasons then the day fairy split into four and then when this calendar comes in then they split into 12 so um so so from the night fairy's perspective um you know she had one sister and then she had like four sisters and now she has 12 kinder cousins who don't really remember who they are or who she is that like you did this to my family you turned my four sisters into these like 12 people who don't remember who they are or what they're supposed right, to be right, right. In, in in that way that religions often do they make a version of the nativity story where you know as well as the shepherds and the wise men there are like 12 godmothers right, there right. they sort of become treated kind of like saints in a way right. so you know like January maybe is like the fairy godmother slash saint for everyone born in that month and also is the saint of baking and cats or right, whatever right, right, right. Um, and so <laughs> (laughs) the night fairy is really resentful about all of this and that's why she curses sleeping beauty she wants to get revenge on the royal family for having done this to her and i think i've said that this show is about kind of the passing on of trauma as told through fairy tales (laughs) that's kind of the initial trauma that sets the events of the show in motion Right. I mean, so I guess it's almost like inter, it's an intergenerational trauma then, like kind of that kind of thing, right? It's yeah, like, yeah. Right, right um, and it, because without giving too much away, right. Sleeping Beauty then passes this trauma on to her own child when she has one, which then kind of enacts another familiar fairy story. Right. Yeah, definitely don't go further than that. <laughs> <laughs> that's the show, or at least that's show number one. Right. I've got several hours of material involving lots and lots of fairy tales. I'm working on the second one at the moment. Right. Because it's turned into this gigantic like narrative spanning centuries and including a whole bunch of different fairy tales interlinking with each other. Yeah. So when I say that like this maybe wants to be a series of fantasy novels at some point, I'm probably not kidding. <laughs> like, cause no, it's it just, doesn't sound like you are, no. <laughs> it's just, there's just so much that I really want to write about and dig into that you can't really do when you're trying to present like a series of one hour shows right. and, and the thing the challenge that I'm facing with writing the sequel at the moment is how do I make it satisfying as a sequel to the first one but also make it accessible and interesting for people who haven't seen right. the first one right. because it follows some of the same characters but it introduces new ones as well and trying to find that line between how much do I need to explain or like you know to go over again versus like what can just sort of right. be left because and... it's complicated as well because when you work because I've done sort of stuff with fairy tales before and, and and it's like when you work with these archetypes in a way people have got like a, a shortcut in mm-hmm. but as well if you change things around then which you know I'm, you're doing and which I've done in the past the shortcuts they've got are no longer shortcuts they're actually long cuts because they they, they you, you then have to say so it's like this but actually keep this in mind this yeah. is new now now this character that you thought of this way is now like this yeah so I can yeah. see I can like, see like oh Sleeping difficulty. Beauty has PTSD now just right. so you know because right, 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 she right. had a hundred years of nightmares right <laughs> um, and 
yeah, right. stuff like that. Yeah, when you start thinking of these things kind of semi-realistically, when you say like Sleeping Beauty's got PTSD, when you think about fairy tales, it's, it's hard to think of a fairy tale character that shouldn't have PTSD, <laughs> like that shouldn't have complicated, explicit traumatic things. There's a lot of like fairy tales are all about, you know, what's underneath the story is a story of trauma, but it's yeah. presented less traumatically because it's sort of not, I don't think fairy tales are for children. I think that's a little bit of a, a, a myth <laughs> in itself but definitely simplified ideas to tell us mm. kind of wider deeper human truths or whatever that yeah yeah whatever human is whatever truth is yeah they're, <laughs> they're archetypes they're a didactic form um they're about imparting knowledge and they talk about very serious things through a kind of magical lens and I'm trying to still do that with what I'm doing with them as well. I was talking with one of the people who'll be working on the score a few days ago and they were asking, so Sleeping Beauty, is she having dissociative episodes or is something magical happening? And I was kind of going, well it's sort of both. Right. Um, Like she is dissociating but also she is snapping back into this pocket universe nightmare world where she spent the past hundred years. Like, right. both of those are happening. Right, kind of like Buffy. I, I'm a big fan of Buffy too. Mm-hmm. It's never one or the other. It's always both, you know, in Buffy. Buffy wasn't the first text to do that either. Mm-hmm. It was just, like, very much my teenage years. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a really great, like, game better acquainted with you. I'm actually sad that we're nearing the time out. Oh, really? Like, you know, really? wow. yeah, it's a, it's a surprise, particularly to, like, people, uh, I think, like yourself, but certainly, like, many people I know who are, like, you start speaking and then, like, we don't know how long that time is. So it could have been, like, 10 minutes. It could have been three hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, like, I uh, certainly, before I started doing this show, I had no real sense of time. <laughs> um, now I'm a bit more aware of it. Weirdly, I, I nearly always check the time at the same time like it's become a natural oh, thing wow. for me now which is a bit weird like that thing where you always wake up five minutes before the alarm goes off <laughs> right. at least I get that right no no I, I do that too and I think like because we have very similar interests we could easily talk for a long time in a way that probably would be not as accessible for the audience <laughs> as, as it would be for us but the last question I ask everybody is do you have anything to plug which kind of leads quite nicely into what I was going to ask anyway which is about like the shows and where they are now and what's happening with them I was smart enough to write this down. Good work. Um, It's on my phone. I'm doing a double bill matinee performance. My show and James Webster's show, Poor Life Choices. They're both immersive fairy tale things. In Webster's one, it's basically a choose-your-own-adventure poetry show featuring a bunch of characters from myths and legends. And that's happening on the 5th of May at the Poetry Cafe in Covent Garden at 2pm. And then I'm also taking the show on a mini fringe tour. I'll be at Manchester Fringe, Reading Fringe and Camden Fringe towards the end of July and the start of August. My Manchester dates are the 24th and 25th, Reading is the 28th, and Camden is the 6th, 7th, and 8th of August. That's, like, where the show is now. I do have other stuff to plug as well. Should I list that, or should I talk about the show more? Talk about the show a bit, and then let's do the next plug after. So a bit Uh, of cushioning to the plugs. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) So it's something that I've been workshopping with a lot of people from various walks of life. The version I took to the Edinburgh Fringe in 2016, it was good, but it it was still very much a work in progress. I think that what I'm doing now is going to be a bit more streamlined, a bit more 
atmospheric hopefully i'm really hoping to get some of the score done by the time i'm taking it to these fringes because i think it'll really add something i, I spent about a year with the show in a box and not looking at it and right. so coming back to it with fresh eyes and going okay these things are important these things need to be front and center these things are less important i can cut them away that's that's been really like useful and stuff and also working on the next one which will include the little mermaid and cinderella has also given me a sense of like what is going to be like a through line between the two shows because right. uh, at, at the moment if the first show is about sort of patriarchy and trauma and patriarchy pitting women against each other then the second one is about sort of solidarity between women and community building between women because you know fairy tales are i don't i don't want to say like matriarchal that's not quite right there's, I think there's, there's, there's a reason people talk about like old wives' tales, mm. you know, that women coming together and telling stories is something that is ancient and important, and it just kind of feels necessary because like a lot of patriarchal bullshit happens in fairy tales. So right. kind of having <laughs> having characters kind of fight back against that particularly because so much of the sleeping princess is about women who are who are trapped in various ways who are treated as property i mean like the very trope of the sleeping princess is such a horrifying one you know like there's this woman she is unconscious she's there as a kind of prize for this male hero to find the idea that you can kiss a stranger and that can be true love's kiss yeah. Like it's yeah, I know. it's very unsettling <laughs> and and one of the things that I really wanted to do with the sleeping princess is talk about how incredibly fucked up that is and yeah. like how that is not what true love is that is not what romance right. should be. Yeah, and then ho- hoping to have something a bit more kind of healing and reparative in the sequel because yeah, the sleeping princess is quite dark. I mean, I I like dark so that appeals to me, but I know what you mean as well about yeah, I mean it's it's a funny kind of thing with fairy tales I mean they are so patriarchal but they are also one of the few places where you know there's a lot of women characters yeah I mean and then quite often that happens where where women are represented they're represented in toxic ways but mm. at the same time that's you know it's it's at least something that fights back against that as well mm. within it like they're both things are in the same, in the same yeah place. and I and I think honestly um a lot of the problems with women in fairy tales I mean to, to sort of link back to what I was saying about Tolkien right. some of it is a question of curation you yeah. know like the versions of fairy tales that we have were collected in the 19th century by, by yeah exactly yeah. by academic men um and that's quite not... often quite Christian men as well, like some of those kind of elements as well. Not not that I'm knocking Christianity for like at all, like necessarily as an individual religion to experience, but like as an institution, mm-hmm. it, it put its stamp on fairy tales too. Yeah, um, and I mean, if you look at the history of Red Riding Hood, um, you know that has very much become a cautionary tale about about you know about rape about right. like the the wolf is this sort of metaphorical like hyper masculine sexual predator and you know it's her fault for straying off the path and not listening to what she was told to do and then she's very lucky to get rescued by like a more appropriate man at the right. end but if you look at all the versions of the story it's not her fault and she tricks her way out and right. I, I could talk right. about this at length but instead I will just provide another source which is a book called The Trials and Tribulations of Red Riding Hood by Jack Zy- it's really interesting and it's it's all about 
sort of the various transformations that that story has gone through in relation to rape culture. And it's just a really oh, interesting wow. piece of really history. Yeah, it's it's great. That's I can really lend it to my, you if yeah, you want. Yeah, that's really up my street. I, I've read a, a couple of articles recently about what the original stories were behind Red Riding Hood, so I've got a sort of sense of what you're talking about from them. But yeah, it would be would work for me. Red Riding Hood, like weirdly. Because of Once Upon a Time, the TV series, uh, <laughs> I have a lot of relationship with Red Riding Hood now uh, mm-hmm. because of the way that they retold that story. I like what they did there. Yeah. Although there was so much that Once Upon a Time did that I'm not I saying just... they did everything wrong. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, I, I stopped watching shortly into season two, but um, it you know, gave me a lot of ideas for how not to do things in right. many ways. Well, that's useful in yeah. itself, right? Yeah. I mean, and yeah, no, sure. But no, I do, I do, I do very much like what they did with Red Riding Hood. I remember feeling very uncomfortable with her presentation at first because right, um, because she was very like feminine and very sexualized and it felt like they were leaning into this uncomplicated Red Riding Hood as like sexual cautionary tale and stuff and I was yeah feeling kind of iffy about that and then where they actually ended up spoiler, spoiler. alert um <laughs> like you know she's she's a werewolf yeah. Um, she's the wolf. The cloak is magic and stops her from transforming. Right. Like that was that was cool. Um, I like that. <laughs> right. Well, I'm always into stories about people with like complicated rage issues who have to control them because that's mm-hmm. like that's my own personal like journey or my family's journey. There's another thing you had to plug. You said I am hosting a poetry night on the 28th of this month. I say night. It's an afternoon. Um, to <laughs> the to... best kind of night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can still, you know, go go home right. early, have some hot chocolate, yeah. put your feet exactly. up. Exactly. The older I get, the more those are the nights I, I prefer. For sure. <laughs> uh, so it's called Wilderness New Queer Writing, and um, it has a really big lineup because I I was ambitious and was just like let's pack as much interesting stuff as we can into the three hour slot and there's also limited open mic spaces for people who are interested. Wow. It's got a bunch of queer poets performing uh, new work or just sort of experimental work the, the idea is I, I really wanted to create a space for queer poetry that isn't like pandering to sort of mainstream ideas about how queer people should talk about their lives and experiences. Um, This is all coming off the back of this really amazing course I did at the Poetry School, which was run by Jay Bernard, who recently won the Ted Hughes Award. And they ran this course about writing poetry using queer archival materials. And the people who went to the class, we've all kind of like formed into a friendship group slash writing collective um, we've called ourselves reunion you know because it has ideas of like community and also sort of bringing things out of the archives and back together with like the people yeah I just wanted to make a space where we could all share our poems and stuff and then I also invited a whole load of other cool people who like have scratch shows or who just want to perform stuff. New and exciting and experimental. Yeah that's that's the kind of vibe I'm going for. Um, it's been a very long time since I organised arts events. I, I, I used to do queer and feminist cabaret nights called Mulan Rage. That's a great name. <laughs> uh, that, that was cre- credit to that one for my friend Sophie. She's great at puns. <laughs> um, 
it's been years um, since since I since I organised an event with lots of different right. performers and stuff. So I'm a bit nervous, but I'm I'm excited. Yeah. So yeah, that that's that's my other event plug, and then I also have a, a publication plug. Yeah. I mean, it's plug. Uh, <laughs> away, like as many plugs as you've got I'll take them all okay uh, so I mean this, this this is this is probably not of particular interest because the book's going to be quite expensive but I've got a piece coming out hopefully assuming they can get reprint permission from the journal it was initially published in there's an academic anthology of work about trans people generally also by trans people it's coming out late 2018 early 2019 it is probably going to be titled The Emergence of Trans. It's based on a seminar series that ran a few years ago, which I was part of as an attendee rather than like a speaker. So I've got I've got a piece about negotiating the complex legacy of feminism. Basically, it's me talking about my feelings in a slightly academic way right. um, and having grown up with all these feminist heroes and then finding out that a lot of them are transphobic yeah. and awful basically I mean, it, the, yeah i mean i can i can feel some of your pain again some of your pain because i am not trans myself but like as someone who admired a lot of feminists uh growing up i've been you know it's it you, you expect to kind of be let down by your heroes but not necessarily by your feminist heroes yeah. like that's the weird thing it's like when you when you've when you when you've gravitated towards someone because of their politics you think that they're not going to let you down whereas if you like you know a band or whatever like you're not that surprised if yeah. you find out that the you know i'm not that surprised although i am actually quite disappointed that, that morrissey is such a terrible person oh god as but, soon as you said as know, soon as you said music i was like oh it's gonna be morrissey isn't it but like no not just morrissey like that but like you you aren't that surprised whereas when there's someone who's politics like who's writing who's like words have like been important to you yeah so i can only yeah like yeah so that i'm i'm interested in in uh, in reading that myself just for uh, yeah just for the the, the solidarity level of like <laughs> yeah like how do we come to terms with the fact that everybody lets you down in that way yeah i've been meaning to put it up online which i've been technically able to do since i think a year after it was published in feminism and psychology but i haven't got around to it because self promotion is hard and scary <laughs> it, it, it is hard and scary for sure and like these things are like seasonal in themselves like it's you can't always be self-promoting as well mm, like mm-hmm. sometimes you have to like gather up the, the the energy or the spoons i guess in in, in your case and in most people's cases <laughs> who, who have difficulties with this sort of stuff so yeah yeah self-promotion yeah. is a it's hard but like you're doing it like you're doing it now yeah yeah it's true <laughs> Um, and I'm almost certainly gonna gonna listen to this and go, oh no, I sound so arrogant at various points, but like, shut up, tiny jerk voice. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 exactly. I mean, I like, I I still hate listening back to myself like quite often, um, and I, you know, this is over it's over 300 episodes now. I really should be used to myself. Although to be fair, 2011 me, I do not. I do not agree with. I do not do not support. <laughs> um, you know, it's not just our, our feminist heroes that let us down. It's sometimes ourselves when you go back and listen to yourself like five years ago. Oh yeah, definitely. But that's a different direction of letting down. Uh, like my past self lets me down. My future self, hopefully, will be, be- better. Uh, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's that's, that's a, yeah. I like I like that optimism. <laughs> 
yeah, it probably is a little bit overly optimistic, which is not something that people will say about me very often. So it's quite nice. <laughs> I wouldn't have, say it was have, overly optimistic, just optimistic. Right, um, I, I added in the overly. I think. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's my that's my yeah that's my own uh, inner voice uh, trying to be overly critical to myself. <laughs> well, the last thing that I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Okay. Uh, goodbye, audience. Thank you for listening to me rant about fairy tales and magic and stuff. <laughs> Bye. Bye, everyone. If you're interested in hearing about masculinity and what patriarchy does to men and to all people, if you go to the Unbound website, and there'll be a link to this in the show notes, you can find Mansplaining Masculinity over there and pre-order a copy of that book. Unbound is a kind of cross between a publishing company and a crowdfunding company, which means that the way that the books get published is that people who want to read the books pre-order those books they can pre-order them as a digital copy or as a hardback or they can pledge more money to get different kinds of things along with the book that they're pre-ordering you can find all of that stuff over on mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk if you're interested in reading about me and my dad and our relationship and dementia and memory and time and history and politics and love and friendship check out my essay series down to a sunless sea memories of my dad as well as making getting better acquainted i also co-produce and i guess star in the magical realist audio drama podcast the family tree in order to keep making it and to make season two as good as we want it to be we need your help so if you can afford to then please do consider signing up to our patreon appeal you can follow getting better acquainted on twitter at gba podcast you can like getting better acquainted on facebook and you can find getting better acquainted on itunes soundcloud those kind of places And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted.